Well, good morning, church. So thankful to be here, thankful to have this opportunity um, to bring the message this morning. Thankful to see uh, on a fifth Sunday all these young little faces out here, and we're just so thankful that we have such a a thriving uh, church and such a great kids ministry and nursery, and uh, just to alleviate any parents, if you're worried about your kids making noise, it's okay. It's not a big deal. Jesus never turned away kids when they came to him, okay? So they're probably not being as loud as you think they are. So just relax. If anybody knows me and my kids, um, you know that noise is not going to distract me at all. Uh, so you'll, you're fine. Just, just, just chill and, and uh, enjoy the service. Enjoy the time of being able to worship uh, with your kids. Um, so again, just so thankful to be here, and as uh, some of you know me, brevity is not really my strong suit. So we're going to get right into the scripture reading, and hopefully I'll have you guys out of here by about like 1.30 or something like that. Should be all right. Um, but yes, uh, we're, we're going to jump right into it. So I'm going to invite Lauren Foxworthy up to read the passage for us this morning, and we will dig into God's Word. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, Church, you can be seated. And I'm glad it's such a regular uh, rhythm to stand because I forgot to have people stand. You guys just got up, so that's great. Um, Let's open with a word of prayer here. God, thank you so much uh, for who you are and for how you love us, God. Thank you for um, the salvation we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word and the truth of it and that we can stand firm on it. Lord, we pray this morning um, that you would just be with those, uh, so many who are, are suffering right now, through, who are going through a difficult situation, Lord, that you would um, encourage them, if they're here or if they're not here, Lord, uh, people we know and love, um, a part of this, bo- uh, uh, this uh, local body uh, believers in this church, um, and those who we call brothers and sisters in Christ who are um, suffering elsewhere, Lord, we pray you'd be with them. Um, Lord, we pray that through the message this morning um, that you would be glorified, and through the worship this morning that you would be glorified, uh, that the body would be edified and built up. Uh, Lord, and uh, that my words would just be your truth and uh, with your clarity, uh, and that I would get out of the way and and allow you to speak clearly from your word. Lord, again, we're just so thankful, um, and we just pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. 
So as we begin this passage, I think it might be helpful to remind ourselves of where we've been to see what a contrast we're going to have before us in this story. Earlier in Mark 9, uh, Jesus takes his inner circle of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain. Upon that mountain, he was transfigured right before their eyes. He was changed into another form. Um, His face shone like the sun. This is according to Matthew's account of, of the events. And his appearance was almost blindingly bright. Jesus not only shows the three disciples this small glimpse behind the curtain to the true radiance of the Christ Jesus, but Moses and Elijah show up as well. Then to cap it all off, God the Father speaks from an overshadowing cloud to confirm Jesus' identity and authority. And then suddenly, everything went back to normal. It was just Jesus there with his disciples on the mountaintop. So they begin their descent back down the mountain. And for the past couple of weeks here, Pastor Brett has unpacked this incredible passage and this, their conversation as they came down the mountain. So if you missed it, that is a must listen. Go back and uh, check those out. You can, on YouTube and Spotify maybe, I'm not sure, is it on there? Yeah, YouTube at least, yeah. Thanks, Matt. Um, so... Check those out if you missed those at all. Uh, But just connecting to this, we're going to see such a contrast here. So after such a glorious experience of the power and majesty of Jesus, this little troop heads back down the mountain. And as was read for us uh, by Lauren, and as we'll examine, there is a striking change in the story. From a taste of glory on the mountaintop to a work in a world of darkness, pain, and unbelief in in the scene below. Jesus and the three disciples arrive upon this large crowd, and in the midst of the crowd, it appears as though the rest of the disciples are engaged in an argument with the scribes. It it turns out the other nine disciples have not been idle while Jesus, Peter, James, and John have been gone. The rest of the 12 have found themselves in a familiar situation, a large crowd, the demon-possessed, and the teachers of the law. Now, if you've been with us through any length of the series through Mark, you are well acquainted with these types of scenarios. Yet it would seem in this scenario, the absence of Jesus is felt by all involved to a great degree. When they, the disciples, are brought a boy with an unclean spirit, the disciples are found to be inadequate in exercising this demon. And and this really seems to be the catalyst for the bickering with the scribes. Now, personally, I I feel for these disciples because it must have been quite bewildering and even embarrassing for them because back in chapters 3 and 6, Jesus had essentially delegated them to cast out demons. Mark 3, 14 and 15 says, He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And they had actually been successful at this too. Uh, Mark 6, 12 and 13 says, So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. And now here they are, trying to accomplish what the Lord Jesus had basically deputized them to do, and yet in a baffling turn of events, this case proved too difficult. Now, before we move forward in this story, I think it's important to point out a parallel we see in this gospel story with a story we see in the Old Testament. It's the parallel between Moses 
and Jesus. Now, not exactly the same, right? But this is a parallel here. So back in Exodus, starting in chapter 19, Moses is summoned by God actually multiple times up Mount Sinai to meet with God. Across these meetings, incredible things happen. I'm sure you're well aware of on the mountain, such as the Lord engulfing the mountain in smoke and fire and lightning. The Lord establishing his covenant with the Israelites, giving them his law, and showing Moses just a glimpse of his glory, so much so that Moses is actually glowing, literally glowing when he comes down from the mountain. Yeah, in one of those times, Moses descends the mountain, comes down from the mountain, he arrives on an unsettling scene. In Exodus 32, the Israelites are committing idolatry by worshiping a golden calf that Aaron has constructed for them to represent new gods that they may follow. This is Exodus 32, 21 through 24. Then Moses asked Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Don't be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I, I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. And when I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. Now, what's funny about that is you read a little earlier in that passage, um, Aaron actually built the calf for them. Yeah, he did ask for their gold, and he constructed it. Then when Moses asked him about it, he's like, yeah, I just threw it in here, and this calf came out. Isn't that crazy? I mean, he was really skirting the blame there. Uh, when When Moses came down, he knew he was in trouble. But anyways, so we have both of these divinely ordained leaders. You have Jesus and Moses coming off their respective mountains. Mount, Mount Sinai for Moses, and the Mount of Transfiguration for Jesus. And when they descend, they must both confront evil and unbelief. Seeing the parallel between these two helps us understand a little better what's happening here in Mark 9. The demonic power encountered in Mark 9 is the same demonic power back in Exodus 32, fueling the idolatry of the people. What do I mean by this? Well, this is affirmed by the song of Moses in Deuteronomy when he reflects back on this. This is Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17. They, the Israelites, made him, God, jealous with strange gods. So they made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not know. Paul actually reiterates this idea about the, um, the demonic nature of idolatry here in, in 1 Corinthians 10, actually. Um, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20, what am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons, So, we see evil, and also what kind of evil and unbelief are at work in both Moses' situation with the Israelites' idolatry and in Jesus' situation with the crowd and the demon-possessed boy, as both of these come down, both of these figures come down off the mountain, right? And the parallel between Moses and Jesus also affirms what we say often around here, 
which is that all of Scripture points to Christ. Through parallels and types and shadows, we see Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater David, the greater Abraham, and so on. These great men in biblical history ultimately point to the greatest man, that is, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So let's jump back into the story. Upon the arrival of Jesus, the crowd is astonished. They're amazed, and they rush to greet him. Now, why are they so astonished and amazed at the sight of Jesus? Is it a new hopefulness of the sudden arrival of Jesus? Is it his air of authority, or are there some residual effects uh, from the transfiguration showing on his appearance? The truth is, the Gospel of Mark does not give us a specific reason, but I'm sure we could understand whatever the reason that people would be amazed at the sight of Jesus. Like that doesn't seem too far-fetched to us that people would be amazed at seeing Jesus. But what we are told is that Jesus gets right to the issue at hand in verse 16. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Now, before there is a verbal clash between Jesus and the scribes, as we've seen before, it's actually interrupted by someone from the crowd. A father comes forward, and as Matthew's account tells us, he actually falls on his knees before Jesus. Then he cries out to Jesus, starting in verse 17, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He is a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He then tells Jesus that this has actually been happening since childhood, and in verse 22, he says that, quote, many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. This is a father who loves his son and is in desperation. Modern readers and scholars may try to explain this condition of the boy with an official diagnosis, but I think one commentator addresses well this well when he writes, quote, attempts to give this affliction a modern medical name do not alleviate the evil behind his suffering, end quote. This boy is not just sick, he's under attack. In verse 19, Jesus responds in holy frustration with what seems kind of like a lament here. If you look back in the old prophecies in the Old Testament and the poetry language. This almost feels like similar to a lament from those, right? He says, and he answered them and said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. But who is Jesus directing the term unbelieving generation at? The disciples, the crowd, the scribes? You know, theologians, they disagree on this matter, and I think it would seem that the best approach would be to see this as a general comment directed at all parties involved. Every group seems to display a lack of faith, whether it's from doubt, from a lack of discernment, or even in direct opposition to Jesus, there is a deficiency of belief present in this situation that leads Jesus to Jesus expressing himself very candidly and openly. We hear it in his rhetorical questions. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? It's important to note that we don't have a Jesus here who's sick of being around them and he can't wait to leave, 
But more so, there's an urgency in his words. He would at one point be gone from them. The time was short. The cross was drawing near. Yet in all of this, Jesus is not deterred from doing good. The unbelief surrounding him does not dissuade Jesus from seeing the boy. He does not turn this father away, but he rather jumps into action. Bring him to me. The father brings the boy, and at this point we get another collision between Jesus and the kingdom of darkness. I want you to know that the passage does not say, when the boy saw Jesus, the boy started convulsing. No, no, the language is intentional. It was, when the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. This stage has been set before in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 1, 23 through 26, it says, Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And after throwing him into convulsions and crying out with a loud voice, the unclean spirit came out of him. With the tomb-dwelling man in the country of the Gerasenes in Mark 5, Mark 5, 6 through 8, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do you have with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had already been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So again, Jesus is in a face-to-face encounter, so to speak, with an unclean spirit. I, I'm going to give a little spoiler alert here, okay? So, um, you know, if you need to plug your ears, that's fine. So, spoiler alert, Jesus does address the unclean spirit directly later in the story, but we're going to get to that next week. Um, that's not the focus of this week, okay? But what is interesting here is that Jesus questions the Father first, Instead of going straight after the demon, he asks how long this has been happening. What a caring and compassionate gesture from Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has just shown the disciples a taste of his majesty on the mount. The Holy One of God who eradicates diseases with his touch and with his word. Who strikes fear into demons and sends them fleeing. Who commands the storms to be still. This Jesus shows concern for the plight of a family in crisis. He allows the father to share his family's story, to be open with Jesus, and to speak on this predicament that has beleaguered them for years and years. As we mentioned previously, the father does tell a story that the father has been afflicted since childhood, and that many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. And then he adds, but if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help. Despite the constant turmoil, the boy's dad has not lost every shred of hope because he pleased Jesus Christ if you can do anything. This is a feeble, beaten down hope with a shield of uncertainty placed before it. Looking back in Mark, we already have a similar, we've seen a similar if statement like this presented to Jesus in Mark 1 when he is approached by a leper. Mark 1, 40 through 42 says, And a man with leprosy came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling down, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out with his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. While the leper in Mark 1 has no doubt about Jesus Christ's power, he's not really sure about Christ's willingness to be compassionate towards him. A leper of all people. On the other hand, the father of the boy in Mark 9 believes that Christ is compassionate and capable of helping them, but he shows some skepticism about whether Jesus' power, um, he shows skepticism about Jesus' power over such a dark and deadly foe, especially after seeing the failure of his disciples. Now, Jesus answers the question about his love and compassion with the leper in both word and deed by not only healing the leper, but actually touching him, which would have been unheard of in that culture. And as we will see next week, Jesus will answer the question about his power and capabilities when he expels the demon from this boy. But before Jesus does that, he addresses the father's statement. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus responds immediately to the first part of the father's statement as if to say, wait, wait, what do you mean if I can? If I can. Jesus zeroes in on the issue of belief, the issue of faith. See, it's not whether Jesus can or cannot heal this boy and expel the demon. Rather, does the Father have the faith that Jesus can do this? Now, we we must make one thing clear here. The Father's faith in Jesus is not some key to unlocking all of his wants in this life, Um, It's not the key to gaining some access to some grab bag of miracles. It's not as if faith is some force that you wield to get God to answer your prayers the way you'd like. In reality, faith is only as useful as the one in whom you put your faith. Faith's power is a result of God's power. As it says in Mark 10, 27... Mark 10, 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The 19th century Scottish preacher Alexander McLaurin puts it this way about faith, quote, faith is nothing in itself, but it is that which attaches us to God, and then his power flows into us. Screw a pipe onto a water main and turn a handle, and out flows the water through the pipe and fills the empty vessel. Faith is as impotent in itself as the hollow water pipe is. Only, it is the way by which the connection is established between the fullness of God and the emptiness of man. Now, the man's reply to Jesus' statement is what I believe to be one of the most transparent statements in all of Scripture. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. This father cries out to Jesus, feeling at the end of his rope. He recognizes the weakness of his own belief. He sees it's still combined with unbelief. And his admission of unbelief is kind of repentant in nature, it seems here. The father's boy wants to believe wholeheartedly and with no shred of doubt, but he recognized that he finds both belief and unbelief in his heart. He knows that the solution is not found within himself, but from outside himself, from another, 
from the only one who is powerful enough to overcome our sinful doubts, the all-sufficient Jesus Christ. So as we've examined in the scriptures, the mountaintop experience has passed. And what I don't want for us today, for me and for you, is we don't want to get stuck chasing mountaintop experiences. The disciples come down off the mountain and they come onto, with Jesus onto a difficult and chaotic scene. I'm sure we've all felt like Peter in situations where we're in those mountaintop moments and we just want to stay there. Maybe it's attending a conference or a retreat or having a, an amazing experience at a praise and, praise and worship concert. Maybe it's going to a church camp. I remember feeling that uh, when I was in middle school and high school, just um, the, uh, the fire that was stoked in me at going to church camps and then I wouldn't put any of my disciplines into place when I came back and then thing, I just kind of came back to reality after that and it just felt like it was kind of petering out a little bit from that. Um, we can have those experiences and, and it, these, are, these can be good things, right? We feel invigorated. We feel on fire for the Lord. We have a stronger sense of unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We almost wish we could remain in that time and place for the rest of our lives. And, and while none of that is wrong, it's not wrong to be encouraged. It's good to be spurred on with a zeal for the kingdom in these mountaintop experiences. It's, the point is to act as a launching point to get you moving forward. Um, but those experiences... It's not where we're called to stay. And it's certainly not the regular rhythm of life. Following Christ means going. Going into dark and despairing situations where the gospel is needed. The purpose of us being encouraged and built up as the body of Christ is to glorify God by representing Christ to the world. However big or small your world of influence might be. 2 Corinthians 5.20, I'm sure we're familiar with this verse, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, we must resist the temptation to always be seeking out the next mountaintop experience. Of course, yeah, those kinds of experiences are obviously more attractive to us than trudging through the trenches where we can risk failure at any time, as we see with the other disciples. We don't like failure or rejection. But we've got to remember that, that failure can bring about good. We do have to be on guard that failure does not produce negative results in our lives. It can cause us to angrily blame others so much that we just become embroiled in loveless disagreements and arguments. It's okay to have disagreements. It's okay to engage um, in those disagreements. But when it becomes a loveless, bitter thing, that is when it's lost a lot of its value. The disciples appeared to fall into this snare of, of squabbling in the passage as they found themselves arguing with the scribes while the father and the son just kind of stood on the sidelines. Responding to failure in this manner can cause us to harbor bitterness towards others. Needless to say, that's not a good thing. <laughs> and we also don't want failure to produce a reluctance or a cowardice in us to not live boldly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. When faced with the prospect of disappointment or scorn from those outside of Christ, 
The easy route seems to be to section off parts of your life. Well, I'll keep my Christian part of my life for Sundays and small groups, and, but my workplace or my neighbors or whomever, it doesn't, they don't have to know about that part of me. It kind of reminds me of a joke uh, by this comedian, Jim Gaffigan, where he's talking about having different friend groups and what happens when they meet, right? And he said, you ever mix two groups of friends? That, that can be stressful. You always feel like you have to prep one group with the other group. And you're like, hey, these people over here, um, they don't think I drink. And also, don't be thrown by my British accent. Um, but that's how it can be sometimes as, Christian, that as Christians. The person your church knows is almost completely different from the person the rest of the people in your life know. Of course, we can always make excuses like, well, I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. I don't want people to feel judged. And yeah, of course, we've seen bad examples of letting the pendulum swing too far in the other direction to where truth is just kind of wielded like an ax to chop down anyone and everyone. Yeah, I think most of the time, if we're honest, I think it's us, I think it's me, I think it's you, typically, that doesn't want to feel uncomfortable. It's you and I who don't want to feel judged. It's a misplaced fear. It's a fear of failure and rejection. But how can we view failure in a positive light? Well, there's an important thing we need to ask ourselves. Do we believe the promise of Romans 8.28? We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That's us. Isn't that such an amazing promise? Look, we're prone to fear failure. Yeah, it can be disheartening for sure. But we must remind ourselves that God is causing all things to work together for the good of those in Christ. So cling to that promise. William Carey, who lived in the 18th and 19th century, dedicated his life to being a missionary to India. He's been referred to as the father of modern missions. He founded the first mission-sending agency, the Baptist Missionary Society, in 1792. And he had numerous other accomplishments as well. Looking back, Harry, he's admired and he's remembered as a titan for his contributions. Yet this was not how his mission journey started in India. During the early years of his time in the mission field, William Carey lost a son to an illness. And as a result, his wife Dorothy succumbed to a nervous breakdown from which she never recovered. Not only that, but Carey did not see a single convert to Christianity for the first seven years in his time in India. Seven years. Talk about discouraging. I'm sure Carey must have felt like a failure at numerous points, maybe even questioned his calling as a missionary, but he did not quit. Why? Because he relied on the Lord for strength through the power of the Holy Spirit, because he believed in the Great Commission, and he believed the promises of God's word and clung to those. God uses, or the Lord uses failure in our lives as such a great teacher. For the Christian, it actually reminds us how utterly dependent we are on the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus reminds us in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. May we learn a lesson of humility from the failure of the other nine disciples. Just as they were dependent on Jesus to accomplish anything, 
So we remind ourselves of our constant need for Christ's grace and the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. And may we remind ourselves of that through our daily prayer, through our time in the Word, through our relationships with other believers. And then let that move us to thankfulness, a thankfulness that we have a loving God who still works through us and for us, even in our shortcomings. So we learn that um, about failure from uh, the disciples here and our dependence on Jesus Christ. Um, and we also learn from the Father that a weak faith does not mean a weak Savior. I do believe, help my unbelief. The Father's plea, I'm sure, resonates with every follower of Christ. Speaking personally, this phrase has often made its way into my prayers. The 19th century Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, says that, quote, among believers, we find few indeed in whom trust and doubt and hope and fear do not exist side by side. Why? Now, because while we are be, have been justified by Christ, we still find ourselves in our sinful human flesh. The Apostle Paul grappled with this juxtaposition inside himself as well. Romans 7, 19 through 24 says this, wrote this great passage, uh, which kind of sounds like a tongue twister when you read it, but it's still so powerful. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's wrestling with him within himself is so clear in his writings. Robert Robinson expresses this similar tension well in his hymn, Come Thou Font of Every, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, when he writes, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This hits home for me in such a gut-riching way, and you may also be aware of this tension within you of today of both trust and doubt, of both faith and skepticism. Maybe there's a desperation in this season of your life that's causing your faith to weaken and waver. You may be struggling so much that you wonder where God is in any of it, and what is he doing? You feel like you're barely keeping your head above the surface, but the waters around you don't show any sign of settling. You don't doubt God's love, but you just can't feel it. You look around at others, and it appears that God is moving so evidently on their behalf, and yet you feel listless and aimless, caught in a loop that seems impossible to escape. Maybe you received a life-altering diagnosis, or you lost your job, or your family's in shambles, and deep in your soul, you want to echo David when he cries out in Psalm 13, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Or maybe the tension within you is not as desperate. You just are beginning to realize you feel more like a walking contradiction. You fear the Lord, but you also fear the opinions of others. 
You trust the Lord, but you would rather trust yourself in a lot of instances. You want Christ to be glorified, but you also want to get some of that praise too. You'll say you'll do what the Lord wants you to do as long as he doesn't call you to do that one thing. That would just be too much. You're willing to sacrifice for God as long as you can still be comfortable. So then what are we to do? Well, we remind ourselves that our weak faith does not mean we have a weak Savior. Our faith is at its most honest when we are aware of how tiny and deficient it is. We do not take confidence in the strength of our faith. We take what feeble faith we have and we tether it to Jesus as tightly as we can. The examples I gave earlier carry this same idea. Remember Paul feeling at war in the, in the flesh here in Romans. Uh, David in the Psalm wondering how long God was going to ignore him. The hymn writer Robert Robinson feeling prone to wonder from the God he loves. The story does not end there in each of those examples. Let's start with the hymn. And come thou fount Robinson wrote the, the prone to wonder line, right? But he also wrote, let thy goodness like a fetter, a fetter is like a shackle, just in case you let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wondering heart to thee, and here's my heart, O take and seal it. He knows he's weak. So he just asked the Lord, Lord, just shackle my wondering heart to you. Seal my heart only for you, O Lord. What a great prayer that is. In the 13th Psalm that we heard from earlier, David is feeling forgotten and abandoned by God with questioning of how long, Lord. But he actually ends his psalm this way. Verses 5 and 6, 13 verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your faithfulness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has looked after me. Despite how he feels, David reminds himself that the Lord is trustworthy and faithful. At the end of this psalm, the truth of God's character shines through David's dark feelings and his despair. And then in Romans, when Paul writes, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He follows it with, thanks be to God through, our, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Even though Paul is at war in his flesh, he's thankful to the one who has rescued him. As he writes in the beginning of Romans 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Regardless of his inconsistencies, Paul knows that it is Christ that has saved him. Paul will not be judged on his own merits or strengths, but on the person and work of Jesus Christ. His weak faith is tethered to a strong Savior who will never let him go. That is our joy and our hope today as well. Yet that joyful, blessed assurance is for those who are in Jesus Christ. I'll take this time to say if you're here this morning and you have not believed in Jesus Christ to be your, to be your Savior from your sin and from God's wrath, that is your biggest need right now. If you have not surrendered yourself to the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work in you this morning to draw you to Jesus. You are currently 
in a state that every Christian has been in at one point. It does not make any Christian better than anyone else. We were all in the same point. Outside of Christ, you are spiritually dead in your sin, and you will incur God's just and righteous judgment and punishment. But God, being merciful, gives us a Savior in his Son, Jesus Christ. All who believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord of their lives and Savior from their sins will be saved and receive his life-giving righteousness. You can do that today. The call is to believe and confess it. As we've seen today, the Lord's not calling you to have the strongest faith in the world, but to place what little faith you have before the all-sufficient Lord Jesus Christ. For those in Christ, those struggling, those of us who realize our inconsistencies, let us not draw confidence in ourselves, but continually be reminded of the goodness and greatness of our Lord. Use what trembling and feeble faith you possess for the glory of the Lord and pray against your unbelief. Don't hide your unbelief and your doubt behind some veil of piety, but instead bring it to Christ. He is faithful and passionate and powerful. Jesus is able. And you and I must always say this in the face of everything that's going on in the world, what's going on in our own personal lives. We must always say this in the face of everything that may point to the contrary, that Jesus is able.